This is the Chapel of DBTS. Be sure to subscribe and listen to the Chapel messages weekly. And for more info, please go to dbts.edu. And now today's message. Let me ask you to go to Ephesians chapter 5, please. I've, uh, I wrestled with it all day yesterday morning. I kept looking up at the clock in, the, in 101, and it was five minutes behind, and I kept thinking I had extra time. I needed to get someone to change the clock in our auditorium, <laughs> as if I watch it anyway. But Ephesians chapter 5. I, was, uh, I actually had to do some research to figure out where I was in the series on worship that I started in the fall, so it's been a long break. So we're going to sort of dive in with a, a review and then push forward, uh, but I, I certainly do appreciate you being here today in, in this uh, weather and the start of another semester. And trust it'll be an excellent one uh, for our growth spiritually and uh, ministerially in that regard. So just two, uh, I guess, sort of, well, three quick reminder points. The first, uh, I've started with two foundational premise points. Uh, the term worship has both broad and narrow definitions. So broadly, it's sort of our doxological mandate. Uh, we are to do everything for God's glory, and so in some sense, everything we do is an expression of worship. Uh, we're, we're declaring by our activity our desire to honor God, and, and that's because he's worthy of it. So I think there is that broad aspect of it. I don't think, we, um, I don't think we're wise if we try and deny that. I think the opposite error, though, we also have to guard against and not turning, therefore, because of that broad doxological reality that we ignore a more narrow definition of the gathering of God's people for specific purposes of worshiping him and honoring him. Uh, and and I really don't think we should waste a lot of time debating about the term. I mean, even if we reduced it to so God has commands for the church that we are to do, and we're to do those to his glory, then, then I'm cool with it. Right? There's something that you as a believer have a responsibility as a part of an assembly of God's people to do as an expression of worship that you can't do just by going off in the woods and observing the glory of his creation. Because right? you can't be obeying all that God said to do unless you are regularly assembling with God's people to fulfill his purposes in the church. So, so I don't think we do it as an either or, or pit one against the other. I think we, we have to just recognize, um, I mean, it is in him that we, we have our existence, right? We, we, we are from him and through him and to him. So every aspect of our life needs to revolve around his glory. The second was, uh, looking at John 4, that worship that honors God must include right affections and engage uh, the heart. And I'm using heart there not as a synonym of emotions, but the control of our, of our personality. We think, choose, and have affection. So we must worship in spirit and truth, not simply according to... Uh, a, a sort of mechanical ritual, but we must engage in it, and we must do so according to the scriptures. So, so my simple way to remember it, right, is it, it needs to be 
it needs to be both scriptural and sincere. Right? Uh, a kind of worship that is just an external functioning that doesn't reflect the internal value of valuing of the thing we're doing is, is has a level of insincerity to it. Right? If I'm professing things with my lips when my heart is far from the Lord, uh, Jesus quotes Isaiah to call that hypocrisy. So, so we need to recognize it's not just going through external motions. There must actually be a, an interior appreciation of the truths that we are expressing and the, the God before whom we are, we are worshiping. Then we began to look at Ephesians 5, and, and I try to set it in the context of this, that um, you know, saying, and this is the last sort of, I think, wrap-up point to get us up to speed, uh, is that su in some ways, surprisingly, the New Testament doesn't contain a lot of instruction directly about what we normally call worship, right? So, so, we, have, uh, so we have a tendency... Uh, uh, and, and, and actually I started this way off, is we have to be careful in thinking about New Testament responsibilities of believers. But, but the, the gathering of God's people in the New Testament seems to be pretty simple and not so much charged on, and I, I know this like can kick off debates if you're wired this way, but not so much instruction given about what we would normally call the liturgy, right? There's, there's not much said, for instance, about the order of a gathering. Um, there's, there's not really a lot said in terms of like a concentrated passage that would be sort of like the you know, the, the pillar or chair passage on it that, that tells us exactly what's included we actually have to do we have to do a theological work of gathering up from the scriptures what what the early church did um, and so in some in some ways I think we we perhaps um, and someone could over argue this right and I think the house church people do but I think what we do is sometimes focus chiefly, um, sometimes people almost exclusively on the praising aspect of worship as being worship. Right, so, so worship almost gets defined narrowly to just the musical component. Right, we're gonna we're gonna get together and worship people tend to think that means we're singing or people are singing. And, and I think that's, a, that's an, a not a healthy reality, right? That, that actually the gathering of God's people to, to do what he's told us to do um, is, is really more the focal point of it. And, and perhaps at times we'd be better off just not to call it like worship, Partly because of all the previous associations in people's minds with it, right? They start to think, "Oh, we're going to have a worship service." If you didn't sing, they'd be going, "Hmm." 
right? Or, or if it was, um, you know, if it was something uh, of a, a completely different shape, but had some singing, but not, not the kinds of things that people tend to associate with. I mean, I think I think we've, I don't think we have this. I mean, I don't, I don't know the minds of every person, but I remember when we started not always having choir for our services, that there were some people thinking that we were leaving a component of worship out because they were so used to, here's what you do in a worship service, right? You have, you have a choir number. And, and um, I can remember early on, I mean, now it's been 30 years, so it's long, long time since we started turning the, the ship on it. But I remember we, we had a service in which we had uh, an extra amount of uh, special or prepared music. And, and someone made the comment about, actually I think a couple of people, like that was the ideal, which reflected to me a kind of view of worship that is primarily participant uh, or spectator. Right? We come and and watch people worship. And I think a lot of evangelical churches still, ha- you know, ha- have have simply just replaced choirs and soloists with worship bands and leaders up front because they're so overpowering that people out there are really just more watching the, the activities. And, and I think we've got to realize that that's, I doubt, I doubt that any of that was happening at Ephesus or Philippi. Right? It, wasn't, it wasn't that kind of structured order, okay, here we come in and now we've got our liturgy and this is the way we always walk through it. And I, and, and, uh, don't hear me saying so we should abandon that. I think we could use that as a discipleship tool. But when people start to declare it dogmatically as the way, the New Testament church worship, they've skated way past the solid ice out the thin stuff. Because there is no evidence of that. Right? There's just nothing. If you're going to go evidence, you're going to go 1 Corinthians 14. If someone has a psalm, if someone has a, right, you've got really actually much more of a dynamic, charismatic kind of thing going. The Spirit giving a revelation to people, giving them a psalm, giving them a, uh, a word. And I don't think most of us want to go there. Uh, so, so I think we need to just... Uh, sometimes hold a little more loosely and stick to the principles and then allow the appropriate application of those principles within the context where we are actually gathering with God's people, which is going to look different, say, if we're gathering in the uh, rural areas of Tanzania than it's going to look in the southwest suburbs of Detroit. It's just going to look different, and and we need to we need to recognize that. So we want to have a more principled approach. And so, uh, looking at uh, we we began looking at Ephesians five. I'd like to start in verse eighteen. 
And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. I think you know that that all holds together as a unit, grammatically, and so uh, what I what I uh, see in this passage, I think, are some uh, ways that to frame our thinking about the corporate assembling of God's people in the way that we normally would speak, say, of worship. Uh, and I think we started last time I was in, and we talked about the catalyst of worship being the Spirit's filling. So it comes out of, be filled with the Spirit, then comes 19, 20, and 21. And, and so it's the work of the Spirit in the assembly of God's people, which produces this. I think correspondingly, uh, Colossians 3 talks about letting the word of Christ dwell among you richly, um, that, it, that both spirit and word are, I'm calling catalysts, that is worship should flow out of the work of the spirit and the work of the word in our lives. Um, so, so it's not, and this is probably drawing it too tightly, but I mean, uh, sometimes people approach worship, planning worship services in a way that, um, that seem to think the, the real worship comes from the outside in, right? I mean, I, I think, uh, I mean, this has been the case across the board. I mean, I know normally we sort of accuse the people who are a little more rocky about using it to, to rev people up, but I can remember days of, of hearing people talk about starting with up-tempo gospel songs Right, you need to start the service with an up, sort of up-tempo gospel song to get people sort of warmed up and ready and stuff like that. That's the same kind of thing. You're basically saying, really, genuine worship needs some stimulant from outside so that we can get people worshiping. Right, and you know, I mean, the, thankfully, I think some of these days, although maybe just I'm not in these circles, right, but the the guy who gets up start the service and says, you know, how many of you watched the football playoff game last night? Were you cheering? Isn't Jesus worth more than football? You know, so let's get fired up today. Basically, they're just, you know, they're they're trying to, you know, externally motivate. And, and I'm not, um, I mean, I, I think, I think it's just, it's, it's, it's wrongheaded, right? Genuine worship comes from the work of God's word by the spirit in our lives so that these things are produced from us. Okay, so, so the catalyst must be spiritual life. And if you remember back to John 4, that's at the bare minimum of the new birth. And I hate to say bare minimum, but I mean, you can't truly worship until you've been born of the spirit. And if you're born of the spirit, then the spirit of God is at work in you to produce a cry to your father so he is working to produce this, and, and that's where we should be putting our attention is cultivating spiritual growth as the, as the root uh, of genuine worship. I suggested, I think as well, I may have gotten stopped right there, I can't remember. Should have put a note in, I tried to look up the audio, but the audio was missing, so 
so it's if I can't remember, my guess is you can't either. So I should have probably just kept my mouth shut and kept on going, right? But I didn't want you to think, boy, Doran's getting old and he's just repeating himself, all right? So if I'm repeating myself, it's because I halfway know that I am. Just halfway, all right? Secondly, the content of worship is the verbal proclamation of God's truth. And I draw that in the text from the beginning of verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Then it has the mention of singing. And then it has always giving thanks for all things. And all of those are truth being verbalized. Right? So, so the content that is emphasized here is actually the verbal proclamation of God's truth. That we are speaking, singing, giving thanks, uh, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, Colossians would, would frame it. So, so um, in no way do we, do we, should we downplay or eliminate or remove uh, truth from the issue of worship. And it actually is truth which, uh, which kindles the worship. It is the, it's the content that we need to have. And, and so, I mean, I think it uh, can be cliche-ish, but I, I think it's actually right, right? We gather and, you know, we read the Bible, we pray the Bible, we sing the Bible, we preach the Bible. I mean, it's God's truth that is to control everything that we're doing, and it's the it's the standard by which we evaluate all things, right? So, so we're never trying to get people to disengage their minds. We're actually trying to encourage them to engage their minds, because that's where genuine worship to God happens. It it happens via. Uh, proper understanding of the truth and response to the truth. And so we, we don't want to let that uh, in any way uh, drift out of it. And this is one of the, this is, I mean, like as, if I could put it this way, like as a New Testament believer, I've talked about the difference between uh, Mosaic worship and New Testament believer. Um, one of the things that I've rest, I wrestle with a little bit is, for instance, the place of solely instrumental music in the New Testament worship. Right? It, it's clearly in the Old Testament. And, and, in fact, that it's incorporated in the Psalms uh, would suggest, I think, possibly some kind of uh, trans-dispensational reality. Right, that you can worship God with instruments. The Psalms talk a number of times. Right, so I think you can offer to God a beautiful expression of music in order to praise Him. Right, um, I don't think that it's supposed to be a dominant part of New Testament worship. And in our case, what we have uh, done to try to not move away from this basic principle of verbal proclamation is that almost always alongside of instrumental playing, we, we put the words up so that people, as they're listening, can have their mind being instructed by the truth as well. Okay. Um, I don't think anyone's obligated to do that. I think it's, it's helpful to keep it from that. But again, that's one of those ones where we, have a, we, we, we sort of wrestle with our traditions, right? We have... You know, mo a lot of churches take up an offering, so therefore you have an offertory, and the, the pattern is the tendency to just have instrumental accompaniment to the offertory. 
right? So, so you're basically just, you've got music playing while people are giving their gifts. Um, and and so, so it becomes a part of the culture of our church in a way that, um, you know, that uh, people are just comfortable with it. But, it, you know, and I'm getting too far afield here, but what I would say is if it's not a song that people know, right, or if it's being done uh, too much for the sake of uh, performance, then I wonder about its value in worship. Not, I'm not worrying about it, wondering about its artistic or aesthetic value, but as a vehicle for God's people to be expressing worship to God? Are we really supposed to have a scenario where one person or two people are worshiping God through their instrument and everyone else is not participating? Right? Because if they don't know the music or have uh, something happening, I'm, not, I'm just not sure it's there. Right? So... So what I, I, would, I guess I just sort of push us to be thinking the primary way in which God's people are to be gathering is surrounding the truth. So even instrumental music should be evoking from the listeners uh, conceptual appreciation of what, who God is and what he's done, his mercies he's, he's bestowed on us. The third principle that I would take out of this is that the context of worship is the gathered assembly in the presence of God. Okay, the assembly gathered in the presence of God. And, and let's start at the end of that, uh, the presence of God. And I think that's why in verse 19, for instance, it says, we're singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. And in verse 20, giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. So there's clearly a, um, a Godward framework of our singing and our thanksgiving, right? We are seeing ourselves as doing these things to the Lord or to God. And I think in the context of Ephesians, that would clearly... Uh, I mean, if you're reading through the letter, right, 2.18 is going to be dominant in the thinking, right? Christ has made it possible for us to have access to the Father by the Spirit. So here we're God's people, the one new man who has this access to God through the Son by the Spirit. And so here he's talking about their assembling and saying, you need to have it focused toward God. I mean, worship is, is actually designed to be about honoring somebody who is superior to us. Right? And, and I think one of the things that is lost at times, probably because our, of our native selfishness, but also um, the, the tendency to treat the gathering of, of the church as a product being done for consumers, right? We're putting on a worship service, and we want people to come, and we want them to like the worship service. We want it to be attractive to them. Uh, we want, you know, in, in 
some orbits were tailoring it toward the person who doesn't know Christ. So what we're actually having a tendency to do is to forget it's actually first this direction. Right? If, if we're actually worshiping, we're doing something for God. And, and the tendency is, and I think, it's, I think it can be very much in, in our hearts, just we've been enculturated this way, is to think, you know, what did I get out of worship there? Well, that song was a blessing, or that sermon was helpful, or that, you know, and we're, we're looking at it as we come and somebody's going to give us something. And did we get what we were looking for? Did we get something that was beneficial to us? And often we're not approaching it as we're actually coming to give something. Right? That we're coming to give praise to God. And it would be more important for us following the service to say, how did I do in discharging my responsibility to praise God? How did I do in engaging in prayer with God's people? How did I do in hearing what God said through his word and offering myself to borrow a Piper phrase, in glad submission to his will, right? That's an act of worship. God has spoken through his word, and I'm bringing myself to a place of humble submission to it, Lord. I will do your will and doing it gladly as an act of worship, right? So, so we, I think we've got to recognize that. Right? We need to see ourselves as not the end user of worship, <laughs> right? What's in it for me? But I've come to worship God today, and how did I do? It'd be like showing up, you know, showing up at your grandmother's house at Thanksgiving, you know, and you're going to your grandmother's house in theory to go visit her and find out how she's doing and, and encourage her and you show up at Thanksgiving and all you're like, hey, what do you got to eat? And, you know, who's going to take care of my needs? And when you leave, go, did I have a good time today? Did I enjoy that meal? Did I get relaxed? I mean, essentially, it wasn't about the person that you were supposedly going to visit and encourage. It became all about you. Yet every Sunday, it seems... Uh, there's a, a significant amount of God's people who show up just like that selfish relative who wants to come in, find their seat, have everybody serve them. Right? Hey, hey, can somebody turn the ten temperature down or up in here? Can somebody sing a couple songs that I like? Can, can we get out of here when I want to be out of here? Right? Everything's viewed as a consumer rather than as someone coming to honor God and show him our love and express our thanks and, and give him glory. Right? We need to recognize it's in the presence of God and it's a great privilege we have. But we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't go so far as to say, so therefore zone everybody else out, which sometimes you hear. Right? When you get in that worship service, you just... Zone everybody else out. You need to block them all out. It's about Jesus. You know, you need to you need to lock in. 
right? But here's the tension in a text like this, right? You're speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. So, so it's not just this. It's actually this. You, you are, verse 21, called to be in subject to one another in the fear of Christ, right? And that's still grammatically in the flow of this, right? So it's also your expression of your place in relationship to this body of believers, one of submission to and care for them, right? So it's, it's, not, it's not, again, an either-or, Either you focus on God or you focus on people. Or you focus on people and you forget about God. Right? It's actually that, that we're coming together as God's people. The, 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 the part of our responsibility is, is being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That we are actually reflecting the, the glory of God's redemption, not just in an individual way, but actually in the community of believers that have been formed, a congregation of God's people. And so we have both in mind. Certainly it must be God-focused, but that does not mean it does so to the ignoring of uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, if we were to add in what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 about worship or the gathering of God's people, he makes it very clear that, that uh, when we come together in the assembly, it is for the edification of the body, right? We are, we are, to, uh, we are always to view it in a way that it must include edification. Uh, any kind of, an, of and I'm going to put it in air quotes because I'm, I'm just using language, right? But any kind of a worship experience that is designed to cause us to blank out about everybody around us and just forget them all is not actually consistent with the pattern in the New Testament, right? Other people are not getting in your way when you're trying to worship, right? I just need, you know, I need to stop having all these people get in my way. I can't worship, right? Go have your devotions, if you want to just have an individual experience of worship. Take your Bible, go somewhere, pray, sing to the Lord. When you come to the assembly, it's not about your privatized worship. It's not about you having a worship experience that excludes the people around you. It's actually about you coming together as a part of the body to fulfill the will of the head of the body through the exercise of your responsibilities, part of which is speaking in other psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, right? I'm singing. I'm not just singing to the Lord. I'm singing for the benefit of my brothers and sisters in Christ that need to be taught and admonished, right? They need that truth. And I think probably a lot of us have had, had the occasion where in the midst of, of the congregation lifting their voices together to the Lord, the truths that are being sung have been used to teach and admonish us. Right? And we've been the recipient of that. We're supposed to be the participant in that. Right? We're, we're supposed to sing uh, in a way that, that we're communicating truth for one another, and that's 
that's the expectation that God has for our worship, right? We, we are aimed that way. 1 Corinthians 14, 26 talks about the kinds of things that could happen. The last part, it says, let all things be done for edification. And in, in their context, it was someone has a psalm, someone has a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation, right? All of it's to be done for edification. That's what 14.26 says. 14.12, so also, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. It's not for your personal experience of using your gift. It's actually for the benefit for the body, right? It's that they would be built up in it. And the foc this focus, I think, on edification takes precedence over personal spiritual experience. I mean, listen to what Paul says in verses 4 and 5. One speaks in a tongue, one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. And I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy, and greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. So, so there's this personal experience that they could have at that point in, in the outworking of God's plan. But that personal private experience was of less significance than the public edification that would be happening. Right? Paul puts the edification of the congregation ahead of their personal spiritual experience. And I think that's what verses 18 to 29 uh, focus on about uh, him. He says, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. All right, so, so think about it. I'm, I'm not advocating tongue speaking. I am trying to draw what I think would be an appropriate principle from that. That is a personal, private, spiritual experience. And put that alongside of the edification of the assembly. And Paul clearly puts this as a greater priority and uses like superlative kinds of language to do that. 10,000 times more important. That's what he's talking about. So take that personal private experience of it. Sometimes you get people who, you know, they come into worship and, and they just become so um, obsessed with what they're thinking, feeling, doing, that, that they essentially want to try and block out everybody. And, and I think sometimes, uh, sometimes, uh, you know, people's experience and expression in worship is, is without thought for the effect it has on other people. Right? They don't really care what anybody else thinks or feels because I'm just worshiping God. And I don't think that draws from the text of Scripture. That really draws from our, our uh, individualistic kind of culture that we have. Because God's plan for the body is its mutual health and edification. And so we need to, we need to recognize that. And I think this is a... Um, so here's what I'd say, and, and, and this might make more sense to me than, than, than uh, I can communicate as clearly as I want, but I want to I say it this way. So, so I started this morning by saying 
worship is not just external it has to engage the heart right and and i think that's absolutely true but here's where i think a misstep happens right by by trying to focus on that sometimes you hear people i think without intending to essentially want to go so they they equate heart with private right they you, you, you don't want to just come here. You don't want to just come here and just like go through the motions and sing. You really need to have your heart in it. And, and, and then they push it in such a way is that they almost uh, have the person collapse inward to the exclusion of people around them because they become preoccupied with how they feel about worship. Right? I've got I've to really feel right about my worship, and so I need... I need to block out all the distractions around me and I just need to zero in on God. And, and, and then, then it can actually create a culture that, that starts to evaluate worship, again, not by how God is honored and how we have participated in the life of God's people, but by the interior experience. I mean, I, that just it didn't really move me. It didn't stir me up. And I think this is, this is actually a, a side part of it, but I do think one of the problems we face is that people can create uh, that, that kind of privatized thing in our culture so much better than any other generation, right? I mean, you can pop on your earbuds and, and listen to professional musicians and artists sing songs and you can basically close your eyes and feel like you're in the midst of this grand experience and 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 you can vicariously worship through them and and then you come to your little church and you know you got 50 voices whacking away at a song and instrumentalists just sort of doing their best and it's like that just doesn't move me like that did your standard of comparison is actually by a thing that's not legit right because the reality is just it's just like the same tendency for a virtual pastor <laughs> i mean who wouldn't want to listen to the top five preachers in the country you know i can get up in the morning and i can turn on the I can have the best praise service going, listen to my favorite playlist, and then have the best preacher going. I mean, it's, it, that would be ideal. Never even have to move. It just wouldn't be what God wants. Right? It's not what God prescribed for us. He actually prescribed us to move, to get together with his people, lift our voices together to him in a way that is building and strengthening our brothers and sisters in Christ, that is encouraging them in Christ's likeness. And, and to have that happen, my, part of my point on the content, the verbal proclamation, for edification to be happening, I think 1 Corinthians 14 is clear that it requires the mind to be affected with or by the truth. That's why Paul puts this emphasis on uh, singing with the understanding. 
right? There, there needs to be comprehension of truth for transformation to take place. And, and I think that's important for us when we're thinking about uh, when we're thinking about the gathering of God's people, that that the the first right the first concern has to be the truth content of it. Right? That that I mean my little my little uh, quick checklist of evaluating a song is uh, it needs to be accurate, needs to be appropriate, then it should be accessible, right? And I think in our day, we tend to flip them, right? We're so quick to want to put it in the, uh, so this isn't the best way to say it, but sort of the idioms of our culture to make it accessible that we're willing to sacrifice accuracy and appropriateness. And we need to we need to not do that, right? We don't think I don't think we can sacrifice any of them, right? But we have to start with accurate, and then is it appropriate? And mine are is it appropriate for the worship of God by His redeemed people, right? And and then is it accessible? Is it within the congregation's capabilities if everybody's supposed to participate? And is it within the congregation's, again, it would take that appropriate culture, right? Is it, is it actually appropriate to the context, right? To, to march, I mean, you know, again, I'll use mission field. You know, a Western missionary who shows up into uh, a rural African congregation and starts to force them to sing in a culturally incompatible way is not actually being consistent with what the scriptures call us to, right? And, or like, I mean, for some reason, people want to bar them from clapping, right? And because there's something sinful with clapping, apparently after the psalms, because it's mentioned there. Right, but they're going, we don't do that. Or appropriate. Well, if you're going to worship God, we better get him in a coat and tie. And nobody even owns a coat and tie. Right, so, so it's, it's, there has to be an element in which we look at it and say, is this, is this, um, is this consistent with the gospel penetrating this culture in this time and in this place? Right, and and I think that's where the, I mean that's where the sixty-four thousand dollar questions come up. But I don't think we can abandon it. I don't think we can abandon that reality. So we start with accurate, move to appropriate, and then accessible. And and it's because if it's not accessible, it also won't be edifying. Right, if the if the if the average believer is not able to sing the songs that we're singing, then they can't be speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Right, they can't participate at that point. And and if in fact if people are lost so that they can't understand the truth, because it's coming to them in forms and vehicles they are completely unfamiliar with, 
then it's not going to be effective either in doing what God calls us to do. So I think we've got to think through these things in a way that enable us to have a principled approach so that we, we don't lose it. Let me just give you the last two principles and then, and then I'm done because I'm done. I'm past done. I'm well done. Uh, the, set, the fourth one is the content, or, or I should say the, uh, the um, I started to jump to the fifth one. The, the, I just went blank here. The consecration of worship is that it comes from the heart. So that's part of what we started with. And then the confidence of worship is the sovereign goodness of God. That is, we're, we're doing worship always giving thanks. Right? So, so we're coming to God with a disposition of thanksgiving, which means we have to be committed to the fact that even if we're experiencing difficulty, it is coming from the good hand of a sovereign God. That's why we can give thanks in anything. Right? We can we can trust God even with our hurts and sorrows because we know his plan for us is good. And so our worship needs to frame that for people. Right? I think there's a legitimate place for lament, but not lament that is un untethered from thanksgiving. Right? We all ultimately have to come back to God and recognize that that uh, that, that he is in control and we can trust him. Therefore, we can rejoice even in difficult circumstances, right? We can count it joy because we know what he is accomplishing. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to think a little bit about it this morning. I pray that you might help us, especially since this is such an area at times of conflict in the church and and at times, uh, the, the, the very thing that you've given to us to be a blessing and a, a joy becomes a point of contention and, and no doubt has to be uh, one of the, the devil's great tricks to play over your people. So keep us from that. Help us to be wise leaders. Help us to be faithful worshipers and, and to seek to magnify you and edify your people whenever we gather. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the DBTS Chapel Hour. DBTS is a ministry of Intercity Baptist Church. To find out more about Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, please go to dbts.edu.